Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, everybody. So good to be here as we continue in our six-part series, The Drama of Scripture. Hope you're getting a little bit out of it. Uh, A lot of people have... uh, Let me know. They have some more questions, but are enjoying seeing the Bible as one cohesive story. So we're just in the second week. So if you missed out the first week or two, you can get caught up uh, online as well. Uh, But we're going to take a look at Genesis 3 today as we've been looking at Scripture as a Bible, uh, the whole Bible, a play in six acts. And we want you to see that the drama of Scripture tells us a story of creation and something called the fall, and then this ongoing story of redemption, which is God's renewal of all things, and then until Jesus returns. And so as we take a look at this text, we're going to be in chapter 3. If you want to keep your Bibles open, I will point back to it. And the first thing, we're going to take a look at verse 22. It says, Then the Lord said, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, Unless he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. We're going to pause. So Genesis 1 and 2, last week, creation, it was beautiful, it was good. And then God said, we saw humanity, very good, very good. It was a really happy story last week. And then we got trouble in paradise, okay, already. You got uh, God saying, what's going on to Adam? Adam's saying, it's her fault. (laughs) Not a good start. And then she's saying, well, it's a serpent's fault. We got trouble in paradise. What God does, he dries out Adam and Eve because the effects of sin have taken root. There is trouble in paradise. And so here's the thing. Whatever this story exactly means, we know this. Deep in our souls, we know we are not all that we were meant to be. Deep in our souls, we wake up, you look around, you look at the news. I'm trying hard every morning not to look at the news or my emails, my first thing. I'm trying to listen to God first, look at the Bible, Scripture, spend time with Him. Because, man, you open up your phone, and there's just a lot of bad news out there, a lot. You know what? We all know something's not right in this world. That's what Genesis 3 is talking about. The world and our lives are not all that they were meant to to be. And so deep in our souls, we simply know that something is terribly wrong with this beautiful but broken world that we live in. Now, in a day and age when talking about sin seems very out of date, maybe even rude, we're going to do it today. So I'm going to try to reframe the story for us a little bit, okay? Something else to consider as we take a look at Genesis 3. To reframe this story of what tradition has been called the fall, we're also kind of calling it the rebellion, rebellion against God. And as we reframe the story, I want you to see that sin is not only a personal problem between me and God, sin also separates us. It's a relational problem, problems with each other. Unless some of you have like perfect relationships out there that I don't know about, okay? Sin breaks down our relationship each other with best friends, with people in your family maybe you're having some problems with. Maybe you're at school. Maybe in your work, people are people. We're broken. Sin is not only between you and God, it's between you and people. And guess what? Sin is also systemic in the world. 
It's not just a personal problem. It's not just a relational problem. It's this cosmic problem. It's a global problem. It's a systemic problem as well. Our world is broken. Let me give you a simple example. I've been doing this quote. I finally got the exact stat. Okay, The suicide rate among people ages 10 to 24. Any of you know someone between the ages 10 to 24? Well, it says between 2007 and 2017, in that 10-year span, a 56% increase in the suicide rate. That is sin. That's Genesis 3. It's not just between you and God. It's a systemic problem like a cancer that breaks down this beautiful world that God has created. Guess what? When Jesus comes back, and heaven and earth are, are perfected in whatever this dream world will be living with God face to face, there will be no more suicide, right? It's not meant to be. It isn't. Center for Disease Control Prevention, 56% increase between 2007 and 2017. That's the effects of the cancer of the fall. Abortion rates are dropping. That's great news. And still yet hundreds of thousands of the unborn still die every year. There's more work to be done. And globally, nearly 3 in 10, 18 to 35-year-olds, 28% specifically, call themselves sad or depressed. Is there going to be sadness and depression when we see Jesus face to face, living with him in whatever this beautiful new kingdom will be, this heaven on earth? Don't you get it? This world is not how it's supposed to be. And so when you wake up mad or angry or disappointed with something in your life, guess what? This world is not how it's supposed to be. And the good news is that Jesus is coming back to undo Genesis 3, to undo the brokenness that the serpent introduced like this cancer. Some of you had literally dealt with cancer. There's not going to be cancer in this new world. It is not supposed to be in our planet. And some of the mystery of it all, I don't know. I have a ton of questions for God when I see him face to face or if I have a really good quiet time and, you know, we're really connecting. I have some big questions for God. Why, God? Why this? Why this? Why not this great answer that I was praying for? Because I know that would have been better than how it turned out, God. Because I think I might be a little wiser about the situation than you, God. You ever pray like that? You know what? God can handle it. I pray like that. God, don't you understand how this world... Let me sit you down, Lord. There's a few things you just need to understand about being a human that you may not quite understand. You know what? God can handle that kind of prayer. That's what the Psalms are. Job. You know what? And then as you pray through those prayers and you see that God is still sitting with you, and he hasn't kicked you out because he can handle your pain and your lashing out. And you start resting in the reality of maybe God is doing something to undo the brokenness of this world. Oh, wait. Oh, you want me to be a part of the solution? Wow. I hope you have ears to hear how you fit into this story. But something in you knows the world isn't how it's supposed to be, Right? Maybe you've prayed this honest prayer, okay? If you own a dog, you know what I mean. Lord, help me to be the person that my dog thinks I am. I don't know if you've ever grown up with a pet who just thinks you are the king of the world, loves you unconditionally. You know you don't deserve it. Help me to be that person who deserves that kind of love and commitment because we know we don't measure up. 
We know our anger, our bitterness, our apathy, our selfishness, our self-centeredness. We try to balance it out with more good things, right? The good ledger. Let's fill up this side. I'll take an Operation Christmas Child box. That'll balance out my bitterness about my sister who got that thing. Okay, that's not how it works. But we do that internally. Love, I do some more good stuff over here. It bounces out. And God's saying, you know, I don't play this game. Whatever game you're playing is not my game. I'm inviting you into a story. I'm inviting you to center your life around me. Because since Genesis 3 and the cancer of, of sin that has come in, you have a problem living solely for me. And you need to get me at the center, God says. The effects of sin are not just between you and God, are not just between you and each other. It's a cosmic problem, brokenness throughout the world, that God sent his son Jesus to take care of that problem so that you would join him on this mission until you breathe your last breath. That is the goal of life, until he comes back again. That's the story. And yes, we do Operation Christian. And yes, we go to Mexico We do all of those things, but we don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we know we're loved, we know we're accepted, and we know that God's grace consumes everything else and that we can live for him and respond freely. I want to live for him. I want to be in the struggle on planet Earth to do some good. I want to be that man, that woman that my dog thinks I am. I want to grow in the Lord and to be that kind of person that is a blessing, that when I walk into a room that people are like, oh, I'm so glad they're here. Because you're that kind of person that makes the room better, that makes your work better, that makes your family better. You want to be that kind of person. But you know deep inside, you struggle with it, don't you? You fail again and again. It's Genesis 3. It's the effects of the fall. We all know that we fall short. Adam and Eve did what we would have done. I always have someone come up after we talk about the fall, Genesis 3, saying, well, it's not fair because maybe if I was there, I'm like, really? Really? You really think you would have done any better. What they did is what we would have done. And we're going to learn exactly, I think, what the Bible is teaching us. See, in Act 1, we had creation. Last week, the good news, the good news. God sets man and women in the perfect beauty of the Garden of Eden. God lovingly speaks to Adam and Eve and gives them complete freedom to enjoy all of creation with only the one exception, not eat from this one tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God asked them to trust him was the question. It was a challenge. Trust him that he knew better than they knew themselves. And so we see God initiating love and then asking us to simply respond in love. He's asking for a loving response. But in act two, trouble's brewing. We have the fall. Take a look at verses 15 through 17 again. What is this tree? Because in verse 15, he talks to the snake. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that at the end of the message. And then to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. So now we have entrance of this physical pain that comes in. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Now we have this kind of brokenness in the relationship. And to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Work now becomes toilsome and hard. This is bad, bad news. Sin is a cancer. It's not just something between you and God. It isn't only something between you and other people. We see that here too. It's between us and the way the world is supposed to work. Okay? 
This is not how life is supposed to be. And we'll see it in fullness when God comes back in Jesus, making all things right. Every human being will be asked this same question ultimately. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? You see, what we see is because they ate from this tree, it's a test of trust. God has given them all the trees of the garden and and all of creation to steward. But this one tree says, God wants them to trust him. Don't eat of this one. I know exactly what it is, but I know it's a test of trust. It's a question of, do we believe God knows how to run my life better than me? That could be our tree, right? Today. Do you trust me, God says, more than yourself? over your finances, for your relationships, for the way you look at the outlook of your life, for the way that you have broken relationships and the path to healing. Do you trust me, God says, or do you trust your bitterness more than me? Do you you trust uh, your expertise? Do you trust your body to make you feel good about yourself more than me speaking to you words of love? What do you trust more? What are you going to put your hope in? You see, every day we have a choice. Do we want to be our own masters or will we submit, another tough word, and realize we need a different master, leader, teacher, Lord. He's the one who knows best. Is God in charge or are you your own Lord? Who do you trust more, yourself or God? That is one way to look at this tree. And we take a look at verse 14 again. The Lord said to the serpent, to the snake, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God has authority over this being. Who is this being? We believe it's Satan himself, of course. The serpent, the snake. Sorry for those who have pet snakes to make a bad name for snakes. But in the Bible, Satan is described in Genesis 3 as this snake who tricks the humans. A traitorous angel, other parts of Scripture say. And what is the snake? the serpent, Satan's job to undo all the good and beauty of Genesis 1. But really what he's doing, he's sowing seeds of doubt. He's trying to sow distrust. So when Adam and Eve chose to believe the serpent's word over God's world, everything becomes unraveled. Sows a seed of distrust. The serpent convinces them that God is withholding treasures from them. And that they can find better treasures without God. Now, here's a little caveat. I think, for the way it works for a lot of us who've grown up in this nation, that the challenge often is not so much to outright reject God, but to compartmentalize God. So in other words, it's not like all of our friends are outright atheists, or maybe you're sitting here, you're not out there picketing against God. But what we tend to do a lot of times is, oh, yeah, I believe in God, but we just keep it in this one spot. And you have like workout here, and I'm juicing here, and I work my, meet my financial planner here. Oh, yeah, God's there, and then my family's here. And we compartmentalize God instead of outright rejecting him. We just say that God stay in your lane. I got my checkbook. My ATM thing, my money, I got that, Lord. I got it. If you can just stay in your lane, God, that would be great. My relationships, my body. God, if you can just stay in your lane, I know my body well. I know how to run my relationships. I know how to make this all work. 
So outright rejection of God may not be your struggle, but compartmentalizing God and without even consciously thinking about it, saying, God, I just want you to stay here. I don't want you to take over my life, my thought life. I don't want you to take over the way I treat other people because I like some people and I really don't like other people. So it's fine for me to say really bad things about them because that's how life works. And God, if you lived here in my world, God, if you could just sit down and listen to me, Lord, you'd understand it's really not that easy if you just knew what it was like to be me, which you don't, God, which we don't say out loud, but we think. We compartmentalize him. We keep him on the sidelines instead of making him the center. So the serpent, Satan himself, is sowing seeds of distrust. Maybe not so much to make you outright reject God, but just enough to keep God in his lane. And guess what? It's exactly the sin of Genesis 3. Stay in your lane, God. Don't tell me not to eat from that tree. You're, withhold- you're holding something back from me. You're withholding from me the respect I deserve. You're withholding from me the security I need, the peace I need. The forgiveness that person owes me. You're holding back God, so I'm going to take things under my own control. The serpent convinces them that God is withholding some treasure for them. And so the serpent is asking them to keep God on the sidelines. You go fine, still go to church, that's fine. But as long as you keep God in his area, not in this part of your heart. See, where there once was intimacy with God, now there's separation Freedom under God's authority now becomes enslavement to sin. Keeping God on the sidelines is the same thing as outright rejecting him. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. That's what the sin of Genesis 3 is. So the nature of sin is declaring to God autonomy. I can run my life better without you, God. I am better at these parts. You can do this spiritual part, Lord. Fine, do that, but not the other parts of my life, whether consciously or unconsciously, that's the core of our sin. It's a rebellion against God's good covenant, this promise that he makes to us and we promise that we make back to keep him at the center. It's a rebellion that, uh, against re- the requirement to be dependent on God for all of that, not just for one compartment of your life, your relationships, your money, your thought life, your direction of your life, what you're gonna do with your life. How you, how you spend your resources and your time. It, God made us. We owe him everything. He needs to remain at the center. But the sin of the garden, the seeds of distress that the serpent put into their hearts and minds is that God is holding back on you. You can't really trust him because he's not really good at running your life. That's what the serpent did. God is holding out. And you see, this creation, fall, redemption things we've been talking about reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 39. It's been a theme verse running throughout this whole series where Jesus says to you and to me today, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. Jesus is offering a way to undo the brokenness of Genesis 3. If you want to find yourself, you lose yourself in him. You don't keep God in a compartment. You say, Jesus, enter in, just like Francisco did in the video. Jesus, enter not just in my one aspect of my life, my whole life. Just like that young woman, Weiwei, from Singapore, who came and was right here, standing here three weeks ago, 
tears in her eyes saying yes to Jesus, take over my whole life. And every one of us in this room will be asked that one day, face to face with God. Did you give it your all to me? And for everyone who has said yes, Jesus says, welcome home, come on in. You're part of this family. True story, famous actor once said this, I won't tell you which actor. He was asked once if actors had any traits would set them apart from other human beings. This is a famous person. And he said, well, without a doubt, he replied, you can pick out actors, but the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. Now, the character flaw that plagues this particular actor, or what he says about all actors in Hollywood, it plagues me. It plagues you. Because we think we're the center. We think we're the star of our little story. But that's not what the creation story says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he made you for him. And he made you to have God at the center of your life, not in a compartment, not on the sidelines, not on some kind of back burner, not as a consultant, you know, you have your, you have your like makeup consultant and like your clothing consultant, your financial consultant and my spiritual consultant. Yay. No, God wants it all. He's looking for you to say yes to him in every aspect of your life. The character flaw of this famous actor and all entertainers, that's our flaw. We think we're the star of the story. But you're not the star. And Adam and Eve forgot this. And when you learn you're not the star, your life, Jesus says, begins to come together. It starts to make sense when you realize you aren't the center. You're not the star. Only by stepping into God's larger story do you find yourself, that you find God. You find meaning. You find purpose. You start living this life in the way that will bring you the greatest joy God doesn't want you to miss out, but we distrust him saying, I think I'm missing out, God. You tell me what to do with my body, I'm missing out. Tell me what to do with my relationships, I'm missing out. Oh, the, the seeds that the serpent sows still are here today. Sin, the sin of Adam and Eve is not so much eating a piece of fruit, but for saying to God, we don't believe you. We don't think you're speaking truth. We think you're holding out. So we're smarter than you, God. Our lives will be better if we just keep you in a compartment on the sidelines for the spiritual stuff, but not for my family, not for my job. The sin in the garden is you telling God, get out of my life, get out of this part of me, and God says, okay, as you wish. You're on your own. And so what we see from this point in the story that there's good news. Because from here until the final chapter of the Bible, what it says is that God has a singular focus. And the singular focus is to give you and me an opportunity to return to the garden. Look at Revelation 20, 21, 22. You see this beautiful story of God saying, I'm coming back for you from beginning to end. His fierce commitment to come to you. And it's such a beautiful thing to see that this God never gives up. And he wants to say yes as you say yes to him. Revelation 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the land through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life. From beginning to end, God's 
fierce ambition. Yes, the reckless love we even sang about was to get you back to the garden. And he's not giving up. We say, God, get out of my life. Get out of this part of my life. And he says, as you wish. But he keeps fighting to get you back into the garden. That's the good news. His singular focus is to bring us into his new creation by revealing the effects of sin in your life. So yes, God's going to shine a light into dark places and show you your sin and the sin of compartmentalization. Try to say that 10 times fast. The sin of you putting God on the sidelines. The sin of you trusting God with one thing, but not something else. It's sin. It's the seeds of distrust. God, I want you here, but not here. And God's saying, I want all of you. And I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep coming after you, inviting you to join me back in the garden, undoing the effects of Genesis 3. And in the garden, God hints at a solution to our sin problem. Take a look at verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, between your offspring, snake, and her offspring. He, Eve's child, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a conversation God is having with Satan, saying, Satan, guess what? For a time, you're going to run to the land, but someone's coming. He's just, so, just letting him know. This is, this is like, what, what, what a great move. Like, you ever know those great, like, uh, athletic teams? And they just, like, look at their opponent and know they're going to they're gonna beat and they say, look, you might be winning for a time, but in the end, I got you. God tells Satan, I'm sending someone from Eve, from the, from the human that you tricked, I'm, through her own offspring is going to come someone who's going to undo you. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to take out your head. Someone will be victorious over your seeds of distress, of sin, of brokenness, of death. A descendant of evil strike the snake in the head, Scripture says. And so we see that Jesus ascended a cross. It doesn't look like victory, but he took on death. He took on your sin, your brokenness, your separation. He became utterly destroyed so that you wouldn't have to be. I don't know why God chose that way. He could have chosen other ways to, to, to make a way for this chasm that separates us, for us to cross over. But he chose Jesus the eternal son of God, the eternal word, the Logos, who we saw in Genesis 1 was present at creation. Somehow in God's wisdom, he sent him in our form. King Jesus to suffer and die on a tree as a criminal. And in raising him from the dead, that made a way. I don't get it, but I know it's an act of love. That is the main thing I know, that that was the way he chose that we are in need of rescue because of Genesis 3. We need his rescue personally between a relationship between us and God, interpersonally in relationships with each other. And we need rescue from the brokenness of this world. Do you need more stats to prove to you how broken our world is? That's why Jesus came and he gave his life to do it. I'm going to close by reading a children's book. And I don't know if you have read Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree in a while, but I'm just going to read this and see what the Lord says to us with this book. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. And he would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. 
And the boy loved the tree very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. And then one day, the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come and climb up my trunk, and swing from my branches, and eat apples, and play in my shade, and be happy. I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I have only leaves and apples. Oh, take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money and you'll be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. And the tree was sad. And then one day, the boy came back, and the tree shook with joy. And she said, come, boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife, and I want children, and so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house said the tree. The forest is my house, but you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and he carried them away to build a house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time and the tree was sad. And when he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered, come and play. I am too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I can give you something, but I have nothing left. Just an old stump. I'm sorry, Well, I don't need very much now, said the boy, just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down and rest. And the tree was happy. The end. Now, I don't think Shel Silverstein was a Christian, But as Christians, we can find a glimmer of truth in this story. Honestly, without this actually having anything to do with Jesus, 
This is like elder abuse. I mean, this is like the most codependent, messed up story ever. I'm serious. That story doesn't make sense without Jesus. It doesn't make sense without a good God, the creator of the world, who sent his own son, the eternal logos, who became man, who became flesh, and who died for us, who was cut down for us. It doesn't make sense unless God's a part of this. Otherwise, it's just codependent elder abuse. But if God decides to cut himself down so that you can sit and rest, well, I'll say that's good news, wouldn't you? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the Bible says every treasure but Jesus will insist that you must die in order to attain it. But Christianity says that Jesus died to purchase you as his treasure. Every other treasure says die to purchase me. But Jesus says, I died to purchase you. So that means that Jesus was chopped down so you wouldn't have to be. That he emptied himself so that you could be filled up. That he gave up everything so that you could have everything. And that means he never gave up on you. And Keller says, he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He did all of this so that you could be treasured for eternity with him. So ever since the fall, he's been pursuing you and me to undo the brokenness, to undo the cancer, to undo the pollution. You want to name the sin? To undo the suicide rate, to undo the depression, to undo the cheating, to undo the distrust, to undo the self-hate. to undo the pride that we struggle with, to undo the apathy we feel, because it's never enough to make me happy. He chopped down himself so that you can sit down and rest in him. Friends, if that isn't a gospel story, I don't know what is, but it only makes sense if God's in the story. He lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, Jesus gave up everything so that you could find true joy. Nothing else will satisfy. There's no house or gadgets, not alcohol, not more attention, not more inner peace, not yoga, as good as it is for your body. None of it will save you. None of it will give you the ultimate thing that you want. You know what you want? You want to be treasured. And God says, I will give it to you, but you have to find it in me. You wanting to be treasured isn't bad. You're just looking for it in the wrong places. You wanting to be treasured and valued is a good thing. And guess who put that in you? The one who chopped himself down so that you can sit and rest. It's the only one who's going to give you any sense of wanting to wake up in the morning. I'm telling you, nothing will satisfy. You know it. No comfort, no safety, no other security. And when Jesus says this, broken you, confuse you, even doubtful you, come and take a seat. Rest in me. Give me your life. Let me lead you. Say yes and rest. And Jesus says, when you take a seat, he says, welcome home. Welcome home, Francisco. Jesus knew Francisco was going to sit down and rest. Welcome home, Weiwei. Welcome home, Tim. Welcome home, Sally. Welcome home, Raul. Welcome home. Take a seat. 
rest. I chop myself down. The seat is ready for you. There's grooves in there for you right there. You see those grooves? It was made for you. Welcome home. And maybe some of you today, you just haven't taken a seat yet. And God is saying, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? I mean, don't you wake up some days just tired? And Jesus says, rest in me. I will show you the way to rest and to truly live. The story in six acts begins with this glory, glorious creation. We see it quickly descends in this painful fall, but we know how it ends. And one day there will be a new creation where all things will be made right. And until that day, he's asking you to join his mission to undo the effects of sin, to give a little glimpse of God's goodness that is to come. So that's why we have teams going to Mexico. That's why we did love our central coast. That's why we have these small groups. That's why we worship each Sunday, to give a little glimpse of God's goodness. And God says, until I come again to make it all right, would you give little glimpses? It's almost as if God's got this great feast he's planned. He's saying, I want you to hand out appetizers. Okay, until I come back for you foodie people, is this resonating? Okay, there's this great feast coming at the end and your job is to hand out appetizers. And you go, wow, that's good. And it rests, guess what? There's something better that's coming. This is just a warm-up act. You're the warm-up act. That people would say, what is this delicious thing I'm tasting? What is this beautiful story of Mexico? Well, guess what? There's a truer story that's coming at the end of all things, and you get to be a part of it. This is just the warm-up act. This is just the appetizer. Even though we sin and break God's heart by running after other treasures, God never gives up. You can rest, friends, in his grace. He knows no other treasure but himself will satisfy you, so he won't give up. He doesn't want you to be distracted. He wants you to listen to the, the words and the ways of the serpent, the tricks that say that, that he isn't real. And so would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We want to believe all these things, but we doubt. And so show us, Lord, that you're real and you're good and you're true. Help us say yes to you anew, Lord, as we come and we bring all of ourselves, Lord. Everything belongs to you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.